CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal and on www.ckut.ca on the World Wide Web. News, interviews, and music featuring the voices of prisoners, their allies, and supporters. Tune in to the Prison Radio Show on the fourth Friday of every month between 11 a.m. and noon, and every second Thursday of the month between 5 and 6 p.m. To get involved in Prison Radio, or if you need to access past programs, email prison at ckut.ca. job, Harvey, to give a man back the dignity he once had. Your only interest is in how he behaves. You'll conform to our ideas of how you should behave. I am not a number. I am a free man. You were a number. You were a man. You want to be a human. I wasn't Jim Crow. And hell, I was number 586. Why do you do a warder's job? It's a good job. Responsible job. Uh, officers like myself trying to... Scum. We're only enforcing the law. Oh, the law. The law. When they hang my husband, is that just... Good morning, and welcome to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM. I am Yasmin. And I am Jean. And we are your hosts for today's show. We would like to acknowledge that CKUT is located on unceded Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabeg, Abenaki, and Mohawk territories. Today we'll be doing a live interview with the revolutionary anarchist, speaker, writer, organizer, motivator, and former member of the Black Panther Party, Ashanti Alston. We will also be airing part of the Rust Belt Abolition Radio's episode number 19, which features an interview with Nick Estes about native resistance and the carceral state. We'll also be sharing a call to action that came to us from a prisoner who listens to our show, as well as a letter we sent to inmates committees in the region asking for contributions and content for the show. But first, some news. On September 23rd, 2018, the National Post reported that Judge Sean Nakatsaru championed a lenient sentence for young black men for young black man in gun crime because of systemic racism and poverty. An Ontario judge voiced his and the justice system struggle balancing a public outcry over gun violence with systemic racism against the young black males in a remarkable, lengthy, and lenient judgment against a Toronto man caught with a loaded handgun after fleeing police. Over objections from Crown prosecutors, Nakatsuru accepted two reports, one called Crime, Criminal Justice, and the Experience of Black Canadians in Toronto, and one dealing the social history, detailing the social history of the offender, Kevin Morris. Nakatsuru released his judgment with a lengthy addendum on how social circumstances of blacks may relate to criminal behavior, so every judge on every sentencing of a black offender can consider it. Nakatsuru noted black Canadian experiences are rooted in colonialism, slavery, and segregation. That perpetuates systemic racism, bringing negative treatment by schools, services, government institutions, and police. Disparate education, hiring, and help may impoverish and marginalize the community, making the problem cyclical and compounding. The conclusion is inescapable. The report, quoted by Nakatsuru, says, Young, black Canadians who view the system as unjust are less likely to believe they should abide by that system. Next, we have a few announcements. The 14th International Black Film Festival is underway 
With 72 films from 25 countries, this is not a festival to miss. Film director Spike Lee was in town on Wednesday night to discuss his most recent film, Black Klansman, and partake in an intimate Q&A at the Cinema Imperial. Mark your calendars as I will list a few films that are being screened in the festival that raise issues of prison justice and highlight the oppression of the criminal justice system on the African-American community. On Saturday, September 29th at 3 p.m. at the Cinematheque Québécoise, as part of a series of short films, Hashtag We Matter by the director Sherry Connie. We, Hashtag We Matter is a short film that strives to highlight the growing epidemic of police violence against people of color. We hope that by focusing on the human aspect of the issue, the hurt, frustration, and often the feelings of hopelessness, the importance of changing a system that allows these actions to flourish can be thwarted. We hope that our film not only elicits an emotional response and encourages conversations of change, but inspires action. Also, on Saturday, September 29th at 5 p.m. at Cinema du Parc, also as part of a series of short films, An Act of Terror by director Ashley Page Brim. Based on a true story, An Act of Terror explores the ongoing oppression of the African-American community at the hands of the criminal justice system. In the Jim Crow South, Virginia Christian, a 16-year-old African-American maid, dreams of a better life for herself. Those dreams are shattered when she is attacked by her white employer, setting off a series of tragic events that end in Virginia being tried for murder. On Sunday, September 30th at 7 p.m. at the Cinema Imperial, located at 1432 Rue de Bleury in Montreal, and the metro, closest metro station is Place des Arts, the closing film of the 14th International Montreal Black Film Festival is Dead Women Walking. A group of women on death row face their final moments, as described by Tribeca's film festival, Liza Dominance, told through nine moving vignettes, each anchored by a subtle yet overwhelming performance, Dead Women Walking traces the final days of a series of women on death row, from two weeks before one inmate's execution to mere minutes before another's. As these narratives develop, the human toll of, death penalty, of the death penalty, not only on the women convicted of violent crimes, but also on their families, prison officials, and ministers and counselors coaching them through their final days comes into clear focus. Looming over dead women walking are two questions. Why did they do it? And more implicitly, and more implicit and rarely raised, how does society grapple with the women's violence? Uh, the next announcement is a call-out for papers on abolition. So there's a call-out for the Routledge International Handbook on penal ab of Penal Abolition. The abstract deadline is for Monday, October 1st. So that's coming up this Monday, um, but the paper is not due until June 2019. So they're encouraging people to uh, send in abstracts. And this introduction, this Routledge International Handbook of Penal Abolition will provide the leading uh, one-stop global abolitionist textbook for the 21st century that will reflect both key abolitionist thought and also help set the agenda for local and global abolitionist ideas and interventions over the coming decade. So each um, article needs to be 5,000 to 6,000 words. And um, uh, so the final paper... It must contain uh, original and unpublished work and be in the range of 5,000 to 6,000 words, as I mentioned. It's written to appeal to activists, community organizers, practitioners, students, and scholars across a wide range of disciplines. Papers should be straightforward, user-friendly, and jargon-free, and prepared in accord with the Routledge guidelines for authors. So all inquiries and communication should be sent to abolition.handbook at gmail 
or um, yeah, so again, the, the email address is abolition.handbook at gmail.com. And so please send all the inquiries regarding the Routledge International Handbook of Penal Abolition directly to the editors and not to their personal email addresses. Thank you. Up next, we're going to share a piece from KiteLine Radio in Bloomington, Indiana. This piece is about the recent student struggles and repression of students in Puerto Rico. In 2017, Puerto Rican students struck in response to a fiscal oversight board called La Junta, imposed by Obama and composed of bankers, insurance firm experts, and men with ties to previous conservative administrations in Puerto Rico. La Junta is managing Puerto Rico's $70 billion debt by inventing austerity measures that cut the costs of public services, like federal funding to public universities. Due to the cuts, the governing body of University of Puerto Rico agreed to raise matriculation fees across all campuses. University students claimed that, paired with the high rate of youth unemployment and low minimum wage of $5.88, and even lower for student workers, that fee hikes would have a highly negative impact on student life. Hundreds of students barricaded themselves in UPR campuses across the island. Many say the student strikes were bigger than those down the coast of California in 2010, bigger in size, in length of time they lasted, and also in the way their concerns resonated with thousands of workers, unemployed, union members, and different nonprofit organizations across the island. So much so that in that May Day in 2017, thousands of demonstrators joined a general strike in the capital of Puerto Rico. Protesters met at several points in San Juan and marched down Ponce de Leon Avenue, known as the Golden Mile, in the heart of the financial district. Surrounded by bank buildings and glass high-rises, they gathered at a stage in the middle of the street and chanted, they won't stop us, they won't stop us, as salsa music blared from behind. The police fired tear gas and pepper spray to end a tense standoff with some of the protesters. Nina Dross was arrested during this mayhem. Nina is a Puerto Rican model, a self-proclaimed hopeless romantic. She has a distinct rockabilly style. Previously, she was an electronic engineering and technology student at UPR Bayamon. She's now serving a three-year sentence plus probation in the Federal Correction Agency in Tallahassee, Florida. She was held from May Day until June 12, 2018, when she was sentenced in Guayaba and transferred initially to Oklahoma. She was in solitary confinement for three months of that and denied access to visits. Asserting jurisdiction because the Banco Popular building in San Juan is used for interstate commerce, the feds charged Dros with, quote, malicious use of fire and, quote, conspiracy, which carry a charge of over 30 years in prison. The main principal piece of evidence? A video footage of a small piece of paper burning on a marble walkway outside the building. The feds themselves even admitted that the building was never on fire. Right before May Day, on April 27, 2017, the president of UPR, Nivia Fernandez, intended to announce a fiscal plan to La Junta that involved several campus closures across San Juan and a near tripling of matriculation fees. A negotiating committee among students formed in response to the impending announcement. They wished that the university would listen to their concerns, even if they were a massive protest of hundreds outside the meeting. President Fernandez had told them that they would be able to come inside and present a clear proposal. But when they got there, La Junta and President Fernandez refused to meet with them. 
I sat down with attorney Maria Nogales Molinini, who told me that in response, 50 people, not only students, but many people involved in the protest, gained access to the meeting anyway and approached the governing body, including President Fernandez, to request that they all sign their proposal to not triple the matriculation fees of their universities. To the students' surprise, the brave tactic worked, and according to Mariana, the whole board signed the proposal. But excitement over the signed proposal did not last long. In spite of promises made at the April 27th meeting shortly thereafter, seven students were arrested for the meeting disrupted and were called out of their homes at night to bright lights of TV cameras, which they were paraded in front of to the court in San Juan. Right now, they are facing their preliminary hearing, says attorney Mariana Nogales. She says that in Puerto Rico, it is in the judge's best interest to drag these cases out as long as possible to make political opposition look unfriendly to the citizens of the island while these budget cuts are implemented. The students now face a range of felony and misdemeanor charges, from intimidation to public authority, to violating the right of assembly, restriction of liberty and rioting, and some even carry a 15-year sentence. Mariana says that the students are up against an environment of repression, which served the political purpose of quieting dissidents in Puerto Rico. A few blocks from the university, I sat down with long-term political prisoner and Puerto Rican activist Oscar Rivera Lopez. Lopez was pardoned by President Obama on March 17, 2017. He is no stranger to an environment of repression, and his persistent role in community organizing from jail has been a rallying force for the island since his arrest in 1981. Parades have filled the streets since the time of his release, and many activists on the island claim his personality forges together many disparate movements. I asked him if he had any advice to the students facing charges or continuing to occupy the university. He asked this encouraging question, if they don't fight for it, then who is going to fight for it? Last year's occupation came to an end shortly after the arrest of the seven students when five UPR law students sued the university on their own to the tune of $1,000 a day to squash the rebellion and reopen the university. Students say that they did everything to make them look bad and to make them look like their purpose was to not let people study. Oscar says that everyone has to come out and figure out how to organize together to refuse these kinds of oppositions and counter-revolutionary maneuvers. The importance of struggling together, he says, the only way we can get things done is by coming together. The human resource is the most important resource in the world. Again this year in June, students reoccupied the university this time with less support than ever. They started out at 300 and ended in 50. While it was an echo of the previous year's May Day as well as occupation, it looks as though the environment of repression might be slightly winning and many students are afraid to strike and many people are afraid to support the strike. That was a piece from Kite Line Radio's episode 113. To hear the entire episode, visit kitelineradio.noblogs.org. Now I'm going to read a letter that I received from uh, the inside the institutions, our federal institution here in Quebec, from the desk of Tommy Bazio. He was nice enough to write a letter to us, and it was, uh, it was a very good letter too. So there's a lot to it, and I'm going to get to it right now. Tommy writes, Dear PRS, Prison Radio Show, thank you for doing what you do. 
As a convict who has been incarcerated for the last 24 years, I feel that things you do are very productive and of course raise health awareness for prisoners' rights issues and day-to-day -day improvements. I have been a prison activist for the last 10 years and have become more and more active every year since. I would like to take advantage of the wave of change that I have seen sensing over the past year. I'd like to motivate my fellow convicts to stand up right now while the iron is hot and strike with the intensity and solidarity never before seen. Now is the time to change. Now is the opportunity to get the change. Please read my following call to action on air so we can motivate those of us that can help bring forth the change so desperately needed. If ever it can be said and be true that the pen is mightier than the sword, now is that very time. Stand up and be heard. I remain dear PRS, vociferous supporter and well-wisher, Tommy Basil. Well, that was very nice, Tommy. Now, we're going to get right to his call to action to other convicts and it, was, it comes at a good opportune time, any time for this, because people have to be reminded again and again. Okay, so here we go. Dear convicts, as you may or may not know, there is a wave of movement that has slowly gained popularity here in Canada. There are progressive voices trying to bring favorable change to the Canadian judicial system and the Correctional Service of Canada. There are bills in the Senate and private member bills in the House of Commons that are arguing for the favorable change that we seek. For example, Senate Bill S-251 is an argument that has gone to its third reading in the Senate of Canada. The bill argues to remove the minimum sentencing laws in Canada. That basically means the end-to-life sentences in Canada. It is a progressive move that is meant to fall in line with our progressive allies and friends in Europe and to stop following the broken, non-functional American-style system. These and many other arguments are being pushed through several levers of government and society. The problem we face is there is virtually no support from people in jail. There are no stories about the hardships that people in the CSC are facing and struggling with every day. And because there is no argument or opinion come from inmates behind bars, the general public and the politicians who will eventually decide our fate believe everything is all right because nobody is voicing their opinion or hardship. That is uh, so true, so true, so true. Now, Tommy adds a little bit of, uh, gives some information out so that the people know what they can write about, which they should know already since they're living in hell. Okay, what is your opinion and arguments about, Tommy writes? Inmate pays. How does the new oppressive system affect you and your positive social correctional development, i.e. pay grades, etc.? The cut and paste practices of the parole officers, the fact that instead of doing all the paperwork, they need to do for every convict, they sometimes cut and paste a general assessment that is the same for 20 plus inmates leading to mistakes and misclassifications. And I can voice my opinion on that. I've been through it and believe me, they do that. Okay, the central feeding system. What more needs to be said about that crap? The cuts made to training and schooling that could help people when they get out. Kitchen training, computer training. How about all the trades that went out, thanks to Harper? And since I can't call him an asshole, I'll just call him an a-hole. The lack of space available in halfway houses, that's a big problem. There's so many people are waiting to get out and there's no place to go. And then when they do get thrown out, there's, to where, nowhere, there's no place. Then they end up coming back and they'll go, why, why, why? Well, why? Because you don't help the guys. Okay, the new laws that can sentence people from 50 to 150 years in jail, thus negating the possibility of rehabilitation. The very founding principle of the Canadian Judaism was rehabilitation. 
Obviously, that went out the window. The administration, wardens, security department, etc., that make their decisions without consulting us or getting our input. Visits and the PFVs. Lack of respect to our visitors, lack of proper services. Man, you could go in there too, like uh, people come in, they can't afford food. The inmates inside have to uh, sometimes bring the food for their families to come in, and they got to do it on half the pay, because Harper, again, cut half the pay. But jobs, and again, pay levels. People being refused positions for unvalid reasons. And there's not a hell of a lot of jobs in jail anyway, so that's a problem. Education. No money for post-secondary, professional training, etc. Again, budget, harbor, out the window. I remember years ago when there used to be professors from universities coming into the pens and guys were getting university degrees. Now, that's all gone. Okay, where are we here now? Personal effects. The 1500 maximum is no longer realistic due to inflation, the lack of stores we can purchase from, storage, etc. Yeah, that's gone to hell, too. You know, they, they would say you can have 1500 but you can only have, like, a shoebox to put it in. So they say, hey, there's no space, you can't have it. Plus, you know, the 1500 is no longer realistic when you come to what we have to buy, since we buy everything with our own money. Okay, sports. Lack of services for reparations. Lack of budgetary investment. Our items are used in damage by staff when we were locked up, etc. Yeah, that's a thing, you know, like, uh, all I can say is if you buy sports equipment... You can lose them. You can be prepared to lose them somewhere down the line. Hopefully not, but that's how it goes. Hobbies. There's no sport for hobbies, nor hobby shops in many institutions. And that's true, too. I know that for a fact. They cut them out because they said, oh, you guys can make weapons, or else uh, we're not going to pay a staff and buy this and that for these guys. They're just convicts, you know. So uh, all, all the hobby shops and music rooms and all that, they're pretty well being thrown out of jail, too, and... Hopefully we can get some of this back. Got to have something to do. Activities. There you go. There are no daycare activities, etc. Now that is, you know, that's true. If you're not working, they want you locked up all day, and then they'll say, "Oh, you can go out for and get leisure time in the evening." I mean, you know, these joints are over full. They're just insane. So that here's another problem. You want guys to be locked up all the time? What do you think they're gonna have? Okay, Corcan. Nothing less than federally mandated slavery. No bonuses, etc. Yeah, that's another thing you can thank Harper for. Uh, they are like that. They pay you nothing, and yet they want you to work like you were a full-time job on the street. Freedom of origin. Delay in getting dies. Lack of respect, etc. Yeah, that there's another thing, too. They don't want to pay for the food and go through the trouble, so they fight everybody every inch of the way. That should be, uh, that's the problem that should be fixed. And then he finishes with everything and anything that has a negative effect on your daily lives. Taxes, GST, warehousing, sentencing, etc. Now he's covered quite a lot of stuff here. You guys all live this stuff. You all bitch about it inside. So why don't you start doing something and writing us, writing people, doing anything. I don't care if it's us. I'd like to get your letters, but, you know, write somebody. Do something. Get involved with some group, you know. Okay. Now... We're going to go here to, he brought another part here, and he actually mentioned a place that you can go to. Uh, you have until October 31st, 2018, to submit your arguments for publishing in this year's Journal of Prisoners on Prisons, Department of Criminology, University of Ottawa, Ottawa, Ontario, K1N6N5. That is again, Journal of Prisoners on Prisons, Department of Criminology, University of Ottawa, 
Ottawa, Ontario, K1N6N5. If you have any argument, aside from sending it to, to the JPP to raise awareness, send your writings to your federal MP, a senator from your province, Minister Ralph Goodale, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Any letter sent to Parliament is free. No postage required for the MP, senator, minister, or prime minister. Make your voice heard, and let's make a change. And that is, uh, that is so true. And anyhow, that's a good segue into the letter I had sent to the inmate committees in Quebec, all federal, 13 federal, in, federal institutions in Quebec, men and women. And uh, I never got an answer back, and I'm sure that uh, half the letters the administration threw in the garbage because as soon as they see prison radio, they get all paranoid they're going to get bad media, which is not the case. You're going to get it anyway, one way or the other. Okay, so here we go. Here's the letter I wrote and sent in to the inmates' committees. So hopefully, if they never got up, they can hear this. To whom this may concern, the prison radio show has been on the air in Montreal for more than 15 years. The show seeks to confront the invisibility of prisoners and prison struggle by focusing on the roots of incarceration, policing, criminalization, and by challenging ideas about what prisons are and who ends up inside. The prison radio show is dedicated to programming that is directly collaborative with people who are currently incarcerated. This is in the interest of forging stronger ties between incarcerated and non-incarcerated people, ensuring that prisoners have direct control over their representation and that our understanding of prisons be informed by those who live inside their walls. The prison radio show airs twice a month on CKUT. We are on the air the second Thursday of the month at 5 p.m., and the fourth Friday at 11 a.m. I'll repeat that. We are on the air the second Thursday of the month at 5 p.m. and the fourth Friday at 11 a.m. Being in prison, we encourage you to, con to participate in the show in any way possible, whether it's something that you have heard on our shows, your own opinion pieces, poetry, stories, or hardships due to your current, current conditions. Whatever you do, we will use it. We cannot put everything on here, but can and will include whatever you send us whenever we can. If you wish to be involved with the show, feel free to contact us at the Prison Radio Show or simply write PRS, care of CKUT, 3647 University Street, Montreal, Quebec, H3A, 2B3. I'll repeat that address. The Prison Radio Show, or simply write PRS, care of CKUT, 3647 University Street, Montreal, Quebec, H3A2B3. Sincerely, Coordinator, Prison Radio Show. Okay, I get a little part here in French here, uh, because we're mostly English, like I said, but if we can get some French stuff, we will. So here's my, boy, my bad French, but I'm going to give it a shot. La plupart de nos émissions sont en anglais. Des fois, on a des entrevues en français, mais normalement, l'émission est en anglais. Cela dit, envoyez-moi vos lettres en n'importe quelle langue et je ferai mon mieux pour les présenter. Merci et restez fort. Okay, you know, uh, I wrote a little bit extra here because what Tommy brought up was so true. You know, I've done 40 years in the pens and I know, uh, you know, we got to, we, inmates don't argue too much. And here's what I wrote. Any correspondence from prisoners locked down in our federal institutions is of the utmost importance to us at the prison radio show. It's too bad it's such a rare thing. 
Tom hit the obvious nail on the head problem when it comes to getting correspondence from the people directly impacted by prisoners and our justice system, the prisoners themselves. And after 40 years in the pens, I know of what I speak, from special handling units to halfway houses, with all in between, I've pretty much seen every hardship that prisoners face, and for the most part, do nothing. And I admit, I acted no different when I was inside, to my shame. Complaining is a pastime in prison, and for good reason. There is a lot to complain about. Some things are minor, but many are serious and have a negative impact on the physical and mental health of prisoners. And so to start with an old food favorite, the food is crap. Just when you think it can't get worse, it does. The shops are disappearing. No more trades to learn. Not enough institutional job. And how about the insane overcrowding? Another Harper trip. Prison health care based on financial budget, not a prisoner's ailment. Parole officers filling quotas, which leaves many wasting their lives inside who should be on the outside in our communities. Or worse, warehoused in higher security institutions than the risk they pose to the public. Unnecessary prison lockdowns because a shop instructor misplaced a pair of pliers or the guards won an early start on the weekend holiday. Half the pay then we had because Harper, for votes, played the hate game with his redneck base using the lock him up and throw away the key ideology. What an a-hole. Strong arm pen transfers for dubious reasons. Century deprivation from long-term segregation that only serves to torture and dehumanize prisoners. And you know that part there, I wanted that a little bit off this here. You know, uh, in jail, thankfully, a small percentage of people actually end up in segregation for a long time. And we as prisoners, we don't see them, they're in the hole. And so it's out of sight, out of mind thing, and you know, we, we, we had tunnel vision in jail, and we concerned our own well-being. But the problem is very bad, you know, and that is something that we have to change, because if the wardens, the government, the wardens and the guards can do this to somebody in segregation, that thought process is in their head. Do you think that they just leave that there, and when they come into the rest of the population? They take that with them and they use the same crap against us. Maybe not the same way, but still not right. So we, it's something that has to be a root that has to be ripped out and thrown away. Now this list could go on and on, and we continue to suffer the consequences. So what can be done? Well, you know, nothing changes fast in prison. We, we bring a complaint, we go to the committee, we write letters, and sometimes, sometimes it, uh, it doesn't happen we, what we want right away, and so we lose interest because we want things done fast. But things don't go fast. Okay, so firstly, those inside can go to their range reps or talk to the inmate committee members with their concerns, which the inmate committee can present to the prison administration. I know the influence of inmate committees across the country has been watered down over the years, but they are still the main tool inside that, uh, that can affect our change. Then there are the outside resources, like the earlier mentioned Journal of Prisoners on Prisons, or the prison radio show you are now listening to. There are always lawyers groups that fight for prisoners, as well as numerous dedicated prisoner rights groups and individuals in the community. As Tommy B. mentioned, you can and should contact your federal member of parliament, your senator, Justice Minister Ralph Goodale, and a special Prime Minister Trudeau's office. After all, he is the one who said he would change the justice system into one more humane and just. So far, he's done little. But if hundreds of letters are sent to him each month, who knows? 
What I personally have learned is that the people fighting for prisoners' rights and all the changes we need to end our country's love affair with an outdated prison industrial complex are fighting so much harder for prisoners than the prisoners are for themselves. I've seen so many ordinary citizens, not lawyers or funded groups, doing that dauntless, underappreciated work. They often have husbands and their wives and children, not to mention a regular job so their families can survive. Yet they use their precious free time to go fight for prisoner rights. They believe that no one should be locked up in a cage and mistreated. They believe that people deserve a second chance. They believe in redemption and what is right and just. But this isn't a one-way street. It has to be reciprocal if prisoners really want their voices to be heard and changes to be made. Contact these people, write or call or however. Tell them about your world, your concerns, your hope. Give them the ammunition they need to fight for all prisoners. And don't forget to, don't forget to thank them for all they do. They deserve that first and foremost. All my brothers and sisters inside, stay strong and keep the faith. You're listening to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM. It is 1135. We're going to hear some ads and then a bit of music. It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Join us for the Montreal launch of the Antifa Comic Book, a brand new graphic novel from the celebrated Indigenous artist Gord Hill. Friday, October 12th, 7 p.m. at CETA, 2515 Rue de Lille in Little Burgundy. The evening kicks off at a screening of the short film Bash the Fash by Submedia, followed by a presentation from Gord Hill. And then stick around after to hit the dance floor with some anti-fascist beats. This is a free event and childcare can be provided. CETA is wheelchair accessible. For more info, check out montreal-antifasciste.info. Love comic books, hate fascism. This is a CKUT co-presentation. Whose data? Our data. When you're not paying for a product, you are the product. Especially in web and email services, where multinationals compete to manage your communication so they can make a profit off of the private communication you are producing. Kumbit is a worker cooperative trying to help small organizations or individuals get their email, website creation, and website hosting services off corporate services such as Google. For more information, contact us at kumbit.org or email at info at That's K-O-U-M-B-I-T. We are not on Facebook. Black is like the magic, the magic's like a spell. My brothers went to heaven, the police going to yell, they're going to hello operator, emergency hotline. If I say that I can't breathe, will I become a child? Up next, we will be doing a live on-the-air interview with revolutionary anarchist, speaker, writer, organizer, motivator, and former member of the Black Panther Party, Ashanti Alston. 
Ashanti is one of the few former members of the Black Panther Party who identifies as an anarchist in the tradition of the new African ancestor, Kuesi Balagun, BPP and BLA within the Black Liberation Movement. As a result of his membership in both the BPP and the Black Liberation Army, Ashanti served a total of 14 years as a political prisoner and a prisoner of war. He is currently on the steering committee of the National Jericho Movement to free U.S political prisoners. On top of all that, he's an elder, co-parenting two young children who are super cute and a grandfather of a small maroon nation. Hi, Ashanti. Hey, power to the people and thank you. Thank you for that intro. <laughs> We're so uh, grateful to have you with us today. Thank you for making the time uh, to speak with us at Prison Radio Show. You're welcome. It's an honor. Thank you for having me on. Wow. Um, so can you tell our listeners um, about the plight of political prisoners in, US, in the U.S. today? And perhaps if you'd want to share with them how this attack and the targeting of political prisoners in the U.S. impacted your life? Oh, uh, sure. You know, uh, you know, as you said, you know, I, I, I was a uh, former political prisoner um, uh, going back to the um, early 70s and whatnot, um, so I, uh, I'm a product of the 60s, you know, the uh, black revolutionary movements, uh, the revolutionary movements all around the world. And um, a lot of my comrades, even those uh, from the 70s who were captured and imprisoned, some of them are still in prison, uh, uh, believe it or not, after all these years. So we're talking about 40s, and there's, a, there's a, at least two who've been in there for, I, I believe, 50 years or more when we're talking about Rochelle McGee. Um, so for me, as this young revolutionary and my comrades still in after all these years, it's very hard, you know, um, and it's hard sometimes to keep up, you know, um, that kind of uh, um, spirit, you know, to say we got to keep on struggling because I, I watch now decade after decade, my, my comrades are still locked up and uh, I have to, keep reminding myself that I made a dedication, I made a promise to them that we would keep on fighting until they're all free, but that struggle is so tough, it's so difficult, and there's very few victories, you know, in terms of getting our comrades free, whether they're from the Black Panther Party, Black Liberation Army, uh, from the First Nation struggles, um, the anti-war movement, and even today, uh, the, the countless uh uh, people who are becoming political prisoners from out of the animal liberation movement, the earth liberation movement, even the uh, hacktivists and, and whatnot, a lot of people who the Jericho movement represent. You know, it's a continuous struggle, and uh, it's a hard struggle to maintain one's spirit uh, when uh, it's not a lot of people that will support you or will help you to do the kind of hard work that can actually lead to uh, uh, the freedom of our political prisoners. Thank you. That was, uh, that was great. You mentioned the Jericho movement. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about the National Jericho Movement to Free Political Prisoners and sort of yeah. what, the, what their mission is and, and what, how it started and what your role within Jericho is? Uh, the, the National Jericho Movement... Uh, Actually, this year was its 20th anniversary. It started 20 years ago by uh, Safia Bukhari, former member of the Black Panther Party, Black Liberation Army, and uh, a new African, um, member of the new African uh, nation, 
uh, Herman Ferguson, a longtime uh, uh, leader of the uh, Black Liberation Movement and former political prisoner himself, and Jaleel Moussakine, who, uh, in, from inside the prison, uh, 20 years ago, even though it, when Jericho started, he was already in his 20th year or more, uh, uh, one of the key organizers inside who started the Jericho movement to fight for the freedom of political prisoners here, knowing that the major mission was even to just let people know within the United States and internationally that the United States also has political prisoners, no matter how much it would deny that. Uh, and talk about other countries' political prisoners, you have your own. Uh, so um, after, I wasn't one of the initial uh, members, but several years afterwards, I was. Uh, I, I did a lot of uh, Jericho work, and eventually me and uh, one of my comrades, uh, Kazi um, Toure from Boston, we became co-chairs. Um, and, um, and, but even then, I mean, uh, uh, the work is hard. Uh, uh, trying to get movement, different movement, to take on the issue, trying to get into uh, communities to, to talk about our issues, is always a struggle. We never got funding. Uh, you can imagine, like, your Soros and them type folks um, uh, don't get money to uh, causes like ours. So a lot of times it's coming out of our own pockets. Or from some of the sometimes fundraisers we do, little money's here and there, but it's never not. But we do get enough to make sure that political prisoners got commissary money, or sometimes it just may be trying to get their families to visit them because the government, whether it's state or federal, has sent them hundreds of miles away from their family that make it almost impossible for their families to visit. We try to at least make sure that. Uh, the families visit, and also to be able to, to try to get lawyers to keep their cases going in court, whether it's on appeal uh, or, or or different things like that. So I, I've been a member uh, for quite a while. It's very important to me. It's probably the most uh, the the only thing that I I really do right now uh, because my full time job now is co uh, co parenting these two uh, my children. And if it doesn't, you know, speaking engagements, I don't, I don't generally do too much anymore, but I am still able to do some political prison work. Um, but in that, you know, Jericho still uh, faces many challenges because we're not, you know, we're not on the top of many people's list. And that includes, uh, you know, progressive movement. We don't expect to be on the government, you know, attention. Uh, because that's not their job, but you you would hope that people in the movement would just look at what we do, look at what we try to do, not only Jericho, but other uh, political prisoner organizations, and take our issues on so that we don't keep uh, uh, going to funerals or providing for funerals for those who are dying inside or those who do trickle out who don't last too long once they're out because they already came out uh, sick and, and damn near dead. And how, so how can we support Jericho's efforts? I know that you mentioned lawyers, and um, yeah. now that I recently finished law school, I will, getting in touch, I will be getting in touch with all my friends in, in the U.S. that are lawyers. How else um, can folks like us support what you're doing with Jericho? Well, there's, there's all kinds of ways. Like, lawyers are always needed because, because it's not like we have money. So a lot of times we ask the lawyers to take on some of this legal work, uh, 
uh, whether it's on appeals or whether it's trying to intervene with, but to get them medical care or to stop some kind of brutal treatment that they're, they're getting inside. They've just been thrown in sick. And it may just be the intervention of a lawyer to uh, kind of put a halt to that somewhat. Uh, but I, I think the main thing I would tell uh, the listening audience is like to go to the, um, you know, the Jericho website. If you if you put in there the Jericho movement, you'll come across our website, and it'll give you uh, uh, just all the information that you would need, the different ways that you can get involved, from uh, how to write to political prisoners, the different campaigns that are going on, <coughs> updates on. Uh, on what's going on with the uh, uh, different movements, different events going on. And I, uh, but I would like to just mention one of the, the main work right now is uh, uh, from the Jericho movement is something called In the Spirit of Mandela, Nelson Mandela Coalition, uh, which is a, a, one of the efforts of Jericho to get us back into the international arena uh, to, like, get some of the, from the U.N. to the international jurists, to like take our case up again and confront the United States. Uh, one time back back in the 70s, like in 1979, you had the International Commission of Jurors who actually came to the United States. They actually visited a uh, political prisoner, Sundiata Kohli, and uh, the two members of the Omaha too in Nebraska. Now, they're still in prison, and this was 1979, and both of them are still in prison. They come out over 40 years. Uh, but it's, it's our hope that we can get the, the jurists again to uh, visit, bring these issues, and allow us to use the, uh, the U.N. Nelson Mandela rule to highlight how the United States does have political prisoners and ab- abuses those political prisoners just because of who they are and, and what they do. And thank you for that. So all of those, all the people listening, anyone at law school or anyone, you know, a professor, anyone else, activists that are out there, let's let's do that. Let's try to take up that cause and and get the International Commission of Jurors to come back and visit because it is it is really unacceptable that the same two prisoners are still in prison from 1979 when that visit happened. Um, on a more positive note. Um, in our recent conversations, you alerted me to two longtime political prisoners who have been released. Could you tell a little right. our listeners who they are and um, why you were surprised um, that they were released and whether you think this is just a random occurrence uh, based on maybe, you know, uh, the whim of the parole board on a particular day? Or do you think this is like a new precedent that may continue? Well, there's, uh, okay, uh, there's actually three. And the, the first one was, was uh, Debbie Africa was released after 40 years. This was in June of this year. Um, and she's the first of the um, of the um, Move Africa political prisoners to be released alive. And I I, I emphasize alive because you know uh, both the dying is coming out in caskets already, not not even making it to the street. Um, then then. Uh, in April, actually before that, April, uh, Herman Bell, former member of the Black Panther Party, Black Liberation Army, San Francisco 8, uh, Herman Bell was released. And then in uh, uh, July, Robert Steph Hayes, uh, uh, member of the uh, Black Liberation Army, 
was released. Now, Herman and uh, Seth were upstate New York political prisoners. So, the, so what was interesting about that um, was that I, it's hard to say what happened, whether it was an anomaly, but I, I do think that what played a part was that you, you, you've had people who have been trying in different angles to, to work on prisoner issues in general, but with a specific focus on uh, aging political prisoners. And, like, this, for example, there's one group called RAP. And RAP is um, released uh, aging persons, aging people uh, in prison. And they do a lot of work around, like, you got New York State got 10,000 people uh, locked up on life sentences, which is, I think, the second highest in the nation. And um, so they do a specific focus on you have these people in there, why are you holding them over one? incident that you have allowed parole boards to define them every time they go to the parole. Um, so they, in the last few years, I think their work has become very effective in, in highlighting this issue in New York State. And then there's a, a, another group called the um, Parole Preparation Project in New York, which also helps uh, a, a lot of uh, elders, prisoners in general. Um, but I, and I think the way that it, it, it may connect with the release of our, our folks is that um, it challenges the parole board members who continually use the incident that uh, uh, the, the, the individuals were charged with and convicted of to define how long they will stay in prison. And it kind of shook that up. And I, and I tend to think that that played a part because their work be began to become more noticed. It began, began to develop grassroots backing, and it began to put pressure on politicians and others to, to, to delve into this parole board uh, power to just deny, deny, deny the release of, of prisoners in general. Um, so it's hard to say, but I do think that those kind of efforts did play a part. You know, uh, but it's, 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 it's the work of people who are willing to, like, go beyond just the activist groups, you know, as your audience, and to, like, delve into communities to get these issues heard and develop ways to get people to embrace those issues so that now you have some kind of power base. Angela Davis, Huey Newton, uh, the... Um, the um, Chicago eight cases and all like them would not have been able to, to be successful if it wasn't for the ability of grassroots organizing to reach inside and not rely so much on like, well, like you know, they're nice guys uh, or from some legal technicality because sometimes that does get people out. But I think the whole key is still the things we learned from the Panther Party. You've got to get to the people. When we said power through the people, power to the people, that's what it meant. Because that is the thing that can really guarantee that our political prisoners can get released. Those issues around prison abolition can, can get moved on. Uh, stop the abuse of, 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 of the prisoners in general. That's why you got these prison strikes going on. So many issues that can tie into the very roots of this empire that that we all suffer from. Thank you for that. So, two, we I, 
we were running out of time, but I'm yes. going to tell you both the last questions so that you can try and maybe quickly uh, answer okay. both of them because we really want to draw on your wisdom and experience. So you just mentioned the uh, the recent prisoner hunger strike that was all over the U.S. and, and even in uh, Nova Scotia here in Canada. So what are your thoughts right. on, on the prison strike? I know you spent a lot of time in, inside, so maybe you can... Um, you know, give some insight into the, the conditions. I don't think they've changed very much since you were inside. And then the other question no. is, um, we wanted to draw on your wisdom and firsthand experience and for you to maybe provide some advice or any kind of helpful information or anything that may comfort people that are to any of the brothers and sisters who have just regained their freedom as a result of being recently released. We know this is a super hard time to come out and to try to, you know, reintegrate into the community. So what helped you um, once you were released to be able to keep doing this great work that you're doing and to, you know, um, be able to reintegrate? Yeah. Well, okay. Well, on the, on the first one, uh, I mean, people really have to understand the what, it's worse. Every indication that I get from what's going on in prisons now, it is so much worse that I can't even imagine how how it's going on in there. So if we were fighting back then from the prison reform to um, to the early abolitionist movements, prison abolitionist movements here, I mean, I can only imagine that these prisoners are really feeling that they're back against the wall. They have no choice but to fight back. It is my hope that the outside supporters can, again, reach into the community to let communities know what's going on, to, to, to show the communities why it's relevant to their lives and to take them issues on and then to be, begin to confront the powers uh, that needed to be confronted to, like, help alleviate uh, some of these conditions until we at the point we can get rid of those prison conditions. The, the thing that, you know, my advice for, uh, for those who are coming out, and, I, and this is, you know, even when Herman got out and, and uh, Seth, is really get away. Give yourself some time to, like, reacclimate to being out <laughs> again. I, I wish that it was possible for, for folks to go to a retreat somewhere to just, like, you know, Feel it. Feel the air. See the trees. Feel the grass without fences around, barbed wire fences, Constantino wires, or guards telling you what to do. Reconnect. Give you a chance to reconnect under different conditions with people, with yourself. And don't feel like you're compelled to, uh, you don't have to do the speaking gigs, you know, the speaking engagements, you know, for people. You need to, like, recover in some ways because it was a hellish experiment experience, I guess experiment too, that you just went through. Organizations that are supporting you and individuals on the outside really need to understand that and, and you don't need a lot of pressure. When you are ready, if you should so choose, come on back to these movements and give what you got to give. You know, but folks on the outside also need to know, and I'm, I mean, I'm being very honest, that you've made some sacrifices, you know, and you need some time to recover. But that is the only way that you, as you know, coming out of that experience can rightfully fit back in in ways that allows you to experience life again 
and to be able, if you should choose, to come back into this movement and to, and to be able to give your experiences <coughs> to those who want to continue to fight. Thanks so, so much. I, I, yes, thank you. And I hope that, uh, I hope folks that know that the struggle can continue, we have to take care of each other. And I think that's the thing that happened with me. Folks took care of me. We have to take care of those who come out. This is, that's super valuable. Thank you so much, because that's advice for the activist community and people supporting people coming out, and also for those brothers and sisters that are uh, being released and, and coming back into the community. Thank you so much yes. for sharing your wisdom and time with us. I want to give the listeners the website for the, it's the Jericho movement.com and Jericho is spelled J E R I C H O. Thank you so much, Ashanti. Uh, much you. love Thank to you. Vivian and, and the little ones. Thanks so much. This is the prison radio. For those of you just tuning in, it is about noon. We're going to play a few ads and then get out of here. The Pop Montreal International Music Festival is back, packed with an incredible lineup that includes artists like El Barbara's Bosom Confidant, US Girls, JPEG Mafia, Zola Jesus, Venetian Snares and Daniel Lenoir, Kilo Kish and Sophie! From September 26th to the 30th, the festival includes over 400 musical groups, as well as visual artists, film screenings, conferences, workshops, barbecues and more! Don't miss out and buy your festival passes at popmontreal.com today. CKUT is a proud co-presenter of the International Musical Festival, Pop Montreal. Grande manifestation contre le racisme. Dimanche le 7 octobre à 15h. À place Emily Gamelin. Demonstration Against Racism. Let's take to the streets to denounce the rise of racism, hate, and the far right. Together, we call for a society without borders, based on solidarity and inclusion. Prenons la rue pour s'opposer au racisme à l'extrême droite et pour dénoncer la montée d'un discours xenophobe dans les espaces publics québécois. October 7th at 3 p.m. at Place Emily Gamelin, Metro Berry, UCAM. For info, manifcontreleracisme.org. This is a CKUT co-presentation.
Yes, rehabilitation. I wonder if you know what the word means. Do you? It comes from the Latin root habilis. The definition is to invest again with dignity. You consider that part of your job, Harvey, to give a man back the dignity he once had? Your only interest is in how he behaves. You'll conform to our ideas of how you should behave. I am not a number. I am a free man. You were a number. You weren't a man. You want to be a human. I wasn't Jim Crow. And hell, I was number 586. Why do you do a warder's job? It's a good job. Responsible job. Uh, 